Hi, everyone. Big E here. Thanks for joining us for the podcast, Virginia Law, for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. We're in episode 10. We're 10 episodes in, so that's kind of cool. Uh, and it's kind of cool, too, that the word is spreading and we're getting the podcast out there. Um, this is a podcast for law enforcement, for those of you out there who want to do it right, who strive every day to be better and to find new ways to strengthen and to serve your communities. And I'm so excited to see all the great comments and all the people signing up, um, people who uh, clearly want to uh, be better, want to improve, want to learn and be the best that you can be. And I hope this has been a resource for you. Keep reaching out with the comments, I like that, but also suggestions for future topics. We've done use of force, we've done what happens with decriminalization of marijuana, and today we're gonna to talk about new statutes for July 1. Uh, we're coming up on July 1 right now, and if you're listening to this podcast, we probably, uh, these statutes have already taken, out of, taken effect probably. So we're gonna to talk today about a number of the new statutes, and then next time also talk about some new statutes and also talk about the new discovery rules that are going to affect July 1. So we've got a lot of big changes coming July 1. Uh, and I, when I say big changes, I mean in some cases really big changes in Virginia law, um, especially the discovery rules, are uh, may, depending on where you are, might be a big change. So we're gonna talk about those in these uh, upcoming episodes. And like I said, there have been some people who've been asking about, you know, what about the use of force law in Colorado and what's happening in Virginia and so on. We'll talk about that as the special session approaches. But since it's July 1, I wanna talk about new statutes today. Um, and uh, so when we go through today, I'm going to start, I'm just going to kind of go in a random order uh, about different issues, but if there's something particular that really interests you, let me know and I'll try to wheel back and, uh, and address it. Just a reminder, by the way, we are on Apple iTunes, if you want to listen to us on iTunes, and now we're on Stitcher, uh, which is a, an app available if you've got an Android phone, a Google phone, or if you've got an Apple iPhone, you don't like the podcast app. So uh, we're trying to spread out different ways for you guys to listen to the podcast. So check us out on Stitcher, check us out on iTunes, and of course, we also have our SoundCloud page as well, if you're like that and you've been using that. Um, I want to start out with um, a new statute for July 1 that you've probably already been aware of, or you've already talked about with your prosecutors, but now it's official. The uh, statute that made it unlawful to possess alcohol or to be intoxicated if you've been declared a habitual drunkard, which we typically call the interdiction statute, is now officially repealed. Uh, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals had reversed a district court finding in a lawsuit where in Roanoke and the city of Richmond, individuals had sued saying or alleging that the, uh, the interdiction statute violated their constitutional rights, that it was a cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment and violated their due process rights. And the district court had dismissed the lawsuit, but the Fourth Circuit reversed and found that the Virginia uh, Code section did, uh, in fact, violate the, um, the rights of the uh, the people who were suing, and so the general, so the um, the Fourth Circuit ordered the district court to grant the injunction, essentially, and uh, the for the General Assembly followed up and simply eliminated the law entirely. In the area of asset forfeiture, um, there is one big change, and that is a new bill that requires any action of forfeiture to be stayed, to be basically held in place, so not to proceed until the. Uh, criminal case that's associated with it is complete, and then uh, only, and it can only continue until there's been a finding of guilt for the crime authorizing the forfeiture. 
Now, note that this doesn't require that the person who owns the vehicle to be found guilty of uh, a crime. So in other words, let's say, for example, a drug dealer puts his vehicle in his girlfriend's name or his aunt's name. Uh, if the drug dealer is found guilty, that will qualify under the statute. So you don't have to necessarily find the person who's, you know, the straw purchaser, the person who they're, you know, putting the phony title in uh, guilty of the crime. But somebody has to be found guilty of a crime in order for the uh, offense to continue. And it has to be a crime giving rise to the forfeiture. So, for example, if the distribution offense is, re is reduced to possession, uh, a conviction for simple possession doesn't allow forfeiture in Virginia, so the forfeiture could not continue. There are two big exceptions that the code section does include to address some of the common ways that forfeitures go, but it doesn't address all of the complications. So let me tell you what the two exceptions are. The first one is there's an exception if the forfeiture is ordered by the court pursuant to a plea agreement. Right? Because you don't want to have a situation where, let's say you have somebody who's been dealing drugs and they come in and they say, hey, you know, um, you know, I'll get a, I'm getting a job and I'm getting drug treatment and so on. Can you reduce my distribution to a possession? And, you know, the response is, well, I'd like to do that, but then that means that you get your car back and I don't want to do that. And um, we can all agree that you bought the car with drug money and you're using the car to deal drugs, so the car should be forfeited. But if I reduce your distribution offense to possession, then I have to give you your car back and that's ridiculous. So... Um, then th this allows for the court to, in a plea agreement, if both parties agree, reduce the offense to the possession, but then also uh, forfeit the vehicle. The other exception is if the owner has not submitted a written demand for the return of the property within 21 days from the day, date that the stay terminates. And this is supposed to deal, I think, with basically unclaimed property or property that the, um, that the person doesn't want to step forward and claim, you know, claim. So let's say, for example, you have somebody who is a drug dealer and they show up to a drug deal and they've got, you know, $10,000 in cash and it's clearly drug money and it's got drug, you know, uh, residue on it and the person has O-sheets and it's clear it's drug money, right? So you know it's drug money. And the person proceeds to trial and, you know, the trial, let's say they found not guilty or let's, you know, or let's say the court, you know, takes under advisement or whatever. So um, if the person hasn't come forward to claim it, and there was a person saying like, look, I don't want anything to do with anything in this case. I don't want anything to do with the drugs. I don't want anything to do with the money. Um, I was, you know, I was acquitted of the drug dealing. I wasn't involved. I was just, let's say, I was just a courier. I was just carrying money. I didn't know what was in the bag at all. I didn't know there was drugs in it. I didn't know there was cash in it. Somebody just told me to take this bag somewhere. And that's the story the person tells the jury and the jury believes them and they acquit them. It still allows the person to walk away from that money. Um, and if they don't file a claim for the money within 21 days of the termination of the stay, then the money can still be forfeited. And again, that's meant to address situations where people are, you know, drug couriers or drug mules and they're carrying money that's not theirs, but it's, you know, they're the only person that we know of in possession of the money. No one has stepped forward to claim it. It doesn't address a situation, though, of course, where you arrest somebody for distribution, they get out on bond, and they just abscond. They just take off, right? So typically speaking, you know, in those cases, if the person disappeared and they, you know, they went, who knows where they went, you know, they're gone, they're in the wind, um, we would usually just proceed with a forfeiture and forfeit those funds. But here, there's a stay in place until there's some kind of finding of guilt uh, or until the case is over. And so you're going to have to work your prosecutors to figure out what to do when people abscond. And then, of course, you know, that happens a lot. It used to happen a lot to us. Um, so, uh, you know, you'll have to talk to your prosecutors. And again, if you're working with any of these cases, you know, your, these changes are going to be important to talk to your prosecutors about in any case. 
If you work in corrections at all, if you're working on the correction side, you need to be aware of two changes to, uh, to the code regarding um, correctional facilities. And one of them involves uh, strip searches and body cavity searches of juveniles. Um, children committed to the Department of Juvenile Justice or who are in secure local facilities for juveniles or adults. Uh, but also for children who are under custodial arrest. So for any of you who's taken a custodial arrest of a child, um, the new code section that takes effect on July 1 provides that no child under 18 shall be strip searched or subjected to a search of any body cavity by a law enforcement officer. Um, there are a couple of exceptions. Um, so you do need to be aware of under the code what the exceptions are. The important thing to know though is that even the exceptions only allow you to search for a weapon, not contraband. So, you know, if somebody decides they want to use their child to, uh, or, you know, if a child decides they want to uh, smuggle contraband into a facility, um, then this statute is going to provide some challenges for you. So you do need to make sure you figure out what your policies are going to be as far as strip searches or body cavity searches of juveniles, whether you're uh, an agency arresting a child or taking a child in custody or whether you're in corrections um, to adapt to this because uh, it's going to put some severe restrictions on you. In addition to that, there, with respect to um, pregnant prisoners, but also uh, prisoners known to be um, in postpartum recovery, there are new rules as well, new rules and regulations regarding the treatment, the control, and the education of them, as well as prisoners who are the primary caretakers of minor children, All right, even if those minor children obviously aren't incarcerated with them. Um, and of particular interest, there's a lot of different rules, but one of them is that the, uh, the following restraints shall not be used on any prisoner known to be pregnant or in postpartum recovery um, once you have notification or diagnosis of the pregnancy and for the duration of the pregnancy, unless there's an individualized determination that the prisoner is going to harm themselves, harm the fetus, harm the child, or the person poses uh, a substantial risk of flight or a, a, a risk of harm to somebody else. So here's what you cannot use on somebody who is pregnant, if you know that they're pregnant, or in postpartum recovery. You cannot use leg restraints. You cannot use handcuffs or other wrist restraints except to restrain the prisoner's wrists in front of her. You cannot use restraints connected to other inmates. Now, if there is an individualized determination that the prisoner will harm herself, the fetus, the newborn child, or any other person, or there's an individualized determination that the person poses a substantial flight risk and restraints are used, you shall use the least restrictive restraint possible. So again, if you're transporting somebody, um, this, is a big, this is a significant difference. If you've got somebody housed with you, it's a significant difference. So again, uh, you probably should look at your directives and consider uh, how you might need to change them. Um, we're talking about big changes to the law, and uh, uh, this is the second time in a row, second year in a row, I think, or I'm not sure if we did this last year or two years ago, um, that the grand larceny threshold has been increased significantly and, in fact, has been doubled again. So you might remember it was only a handful of years ago that the difference between petty larceny and grand larceny was $200. And then about a year or two ago, um, the Virginia Association of Commonwealth Attorneys and everybody in the General Assembly sort of agreed it should be $500. And the General Assembly uh, raised the limit to $500. 
This year, they doubled it again, and now it's $1,000. So this is covering grand larceny, but it's also covering um, certain uh, other, a lot of other offenses like uh, receiving stolen property or unauthorized use of a vehicle or credit card uh, fraud. Um, it also covers computer crimes. It covers larceny by false pretense, um, false statement to obtain property or credit. Um, it covers uh, identity theft. A lot of different code sections that have that two hundred that used to have that two hundred dollar threshold and then had that five hundred dollar threshold. Now it's a thousand dollars. So, um, you know, uh, fortunately Apple took care of you, and I don't think you can get an iPhone now for less than a thousand dollars. But uh, if you're going to find an iPhone for less than a thousand dollars, then in stealing it, it would be uh, simple petty larceny. Um, on the area of repeals as well, uh, you know, in Virginia, it's still, it was still unlawful. Um, you know, the, the drunken public statute had, it was unlawful to uh, be intoxicated in public and also to swear, to profanely swear in public was part of that code section. It was a class four misdemeanor. I don't know if you ever charged anybody. I never saw anybody charged with that. Um, but we finally removed that from the code section. So now the part of the code section that says that it's unlawful to profanely curse or swear in public has been removed. So for those of you who have avoided cursing in public because you didn't want to violate this particular code section, don't worry about it anymore. You're free to curse in public now. Um, under, uh, that code section has been repealed. Um, on the area of uh, firearms, there's been a lot of new firearm bills starting July 1, and I'm going to try to cover some of them today, and we may need to cover some of them next time as well, because like I said, there's been a lot of changes. But one of the code sections that did change was fire, um, possession of firearms while under a protective order. It is now a felony offense in Virginia for a person who's subject to a permanent protective order from possessing firearms while the order is in effect. Now, again, you know, this has been federal law for some time. I mean, it, it's been, I think, at least 10 or 15 years, if not longer, maybe longer than 15 years, that under federal law, um, if you possess a firearm while you are subject to a protective order, it's a federal felony. But now in Virginia, it's also a felony as well. But the significant change for your purposes is not just that it's a felony offense for people who are subject to protective order to possess a firearm, but that if you once a person's been served with a permanent protective order, they have to certify in writing within 48 hours that they do not possess any firearms, or that if they did possess any firearms, that they've properly disposed of them. And um, if they don't certify it, it's contempt of court. So they still have to you know provide that certification. So what are they going to do with their firearms? Well, the code now provides that upon issuance of a protective order, um, again, that the person has to uh, make that certification, and then the court has to order the person who is subject to the protective order to, within 24 hours after being served with protective order, to surrender any firearm possessed to a designated law enforcement agency or to sell or transfer the firearm or um, uh, within 48 hours, um, again, certify that they don't have any firearms or that they've already surrendered, sold, or transferred that firearm uh, and filed that certification with the clerk. So now what that means is that in every locality in Virginia, there has to be a law enforcement agency, at least one law enforcement agency that is equipped and ready to accept these firearms, be it one or 100, uh, whatever this person has, and when they're accepting the firearms, they're not accepting them for ownership. It's not like the person is 
now taking the firearms and giving them up forever. They're giving them up for the duration of the protective order. And, and you know, of course, obviously, protective orders don't last forever. Um, many of them last for, you know, a year or two years. But, of course, many of them get dissolved. And when it's dissolved, the person now can possess firearms again. So you're basically ending up, you know, having to hold on to these firearms. Um, when you take these firearms into custody, under the law, you shall pre prepare a written receipt containing the name of the person and the manufacturer, model, and serial number of the firearm, and it shall be returned to the person upon the expiration of the, fire of the protective order, whether it's a week or a month or two years. At some point, the person can come back and get their guns, and you have to give the firearm back within five days of receiving a written request for return of the firearm. Now, when the person comes back, again, you have to run a background check again on them and make sure they're not prohibited from possessing a firearm. They haven't become a felon in the meantime and so on. Um, and, um, and again, the person can, if the person doesn't want the firearms back, if they just want you to get rid of them, then they can authorize you to dispose of them. Um, or once the protective order expires, if the person doesn't come back to claim them within 120 days, then you can also dispose of the firearm as well. So, and again, if they turn over a firearm to you, the protective order is a two-year protective order. You write down it's two years, and then two years and 120 days later, so you know, two and a half years later, the person still hasn't come back. They haven't filed a written request, and at that point, you can dispose of the firearm. Now, you may immediately be thinking, well, that's that's great. Now I become liable for, you know, one or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 firearms that have suddenly been, you know, put in my property section. That's a huge amount of liability, right? Because I mean, some firearms are, you know, worth 50 bucks or 100 bucks. Um, some firearms are worth, you know, 1,000 or 10,000 or $100,000, um, especially the antique, you know, especially antique or collectible firearms. And the code section does provide that any law enforcement agency or law enforcement officer that takes into custody, stores, possesses, or transports a firearm under this code section shall be immune from civil or criminal liability for any damage to or deterioration, loss, or theft of such firearm. So that's a pretty big waiver of liability. We don't see a big waiver of liability like that in a lot of law, but... This is a really extreme expression of sovereign immunity. I mean, anything that happens to that firearm in police custody, it says here you're immune. Um, so, you know, again, you want to, uh, you know, you want to protect these items and you want to treat them with their, you know, with their, their public property. They belong to somebody else. So treat them with respect. But, um, but as, you know, as far as being concerned, like, oh, I don't want to take this $100,000 collectible, you know, whatever, uh, you know, World War II era, you know, German something or other, uh, because I'm afraid that it's going to get damaged and I have, I'm concerned about it, you know, and I have to get liability for it. This says that you're not liable for damage to it. And so now the question, then the other question you're probably racing in your mind is, well, okay, so are we supposed to take that? Or, you know, does the sheriff's office take that? Does the police department take that? Where the town police, does the county police take it? Where the, you know, we're the city sheriff, but the county police don't have the property. You know, well, who's supposed to take this? And the code also provides to some, some guidance on that in stating that the law enforcement agencies of the county, cities, and towns within each judicial circuit shall designate in coordination with each other and provide to the chief judges of all circuit and district courts within the judicial circuit, one or more local law enforcement agencies to receive and store firearms under this code section. Law enforcement agencies shall provide the chief judges with a list of that includes the addresses and hours of operation for any such law enforcement agency designated. Um, and, um, and so you have to get together essentially with your local law enforcement to figure out who's going to take on this expense. Um, 
you know, obviously, again, property sections don't have unlimited space. And the storage space costs money and costs time and costs personnel and you have to track them. And somebody's going to have to take on this expense. The code section does not provide any money as far as I can tell to anybody. So it's not like, well, if we take on the responsibility, then we get the funds because there isn't any funding. Um, so uh, you're going to have to figure that out. And then whatever you figure out, you have an obligation to tell your local courts so your courts can tell the individuals who come in who are subject to protective order, this is where you can go. This is, you know, you live in um, Springfield County, so therefore you should go to the Springfield County Sheriff's Department between the hours of, uh, you know, 9.30 in the morning to 4 p.m. And if you go to the property section, then they'll tell you what to do. Um, and, you know, while you're at it, don't walk up to the front door of the Springfield County Sheriff's Department carrying your gun because that's not going to go particularly well. They won't react well to that. So here's what they want you to do. They want you to you know, leave the gun in the trunk of your car or you know, carry it in a case or whatever. So you give all those instructions, and, uh, and that's what the code section requires you to do. I'm going to turn in a minute to new laws regarding drugs. But before I do, I want to talk to you guys again about Copline. Um, last year in 2019, at least 228 police officers died by suicide, according to Blue Help, which is an organization devoted to addressing officers' mental and emotional health. That's more than were killed in the line of duty, and that is a huge increase from 178 officers who died in, 100, in 2018. Any number is too many, but 2019's numbers were a tragedy, and we can do better. We need to acknowledge what the stress and trauma of this job can do to us and to our families and recognize it in each other. If you feel like there's no way to face another day, there's no reason to keep on going, that no one cares or the world would be better off without you, first of all, know that that's not true. And second of all, know you are not alone. Um, find someone to reach out, find someone to talk to, and 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 get that help that you need. Um, because, you know, again, the world is not out there to destroy you. Please don't, you know, listen to internet comments. You know, I, I feel like uh, the internet comment section of any message board is like every every bar has that one really drunk guy who's just running his mouth and everyone else is just rolling their eyes. The internet message boards are all of the one really drunk guy just packed together into one place. And you don't get to see everybody else rolling their eyes. But that's what's happening out there in the real world, right? The crazy people... Um, don't listen to them. Um, listen to what, you know, real people with families and jobs and who go out there and, you know, uh, bust their tails every day. Those are the people who appreciate what you do and your buddies who need you. Um, if you don't have anyone like that to talk to, Copline is there for you. It is manned entirely by retired law enforcement officers. An active or retired officer or their family can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and be assured there's a trained, active listener on the other end of the line who understands what you're going through and can talk talk to you. It is strictly confidential, and their number is 800-COPLINE. That's 800 267 five four six three that's eight hundred two six seven five four six three or copline.org uh, check them out we talked a lot in the last couple of episodes about the decriminalization of marijuana there were several other code sections enacted with respect to drugs and i do want to talk about those today uh and that's going to be some of the last stuff we talk about today i think um hemp products are on the rise. CBD products are on the rise in Virginia. And on the other hand, we enacted a statute a few years ago that provided that smoking tobacco is prohibited if you're under 21. And so this year, the General Assembly added hemp products to tobacco 
um, is, as products that, that you cannot purchase if you're under 21 and you're intending to smoke. So hemp products are now added to the prohibition for people under 21 to possess tobacco and to possess nicotine vaping products. They can now also not uh, possess hemp products intended for smoking as well. On the other hand, though, industrial hemp extract has been approved as a food or ingredient that is subject to regulation in the Commonwealth. Now, again, industrial hemp extracts are grown and produced from industrial hemp that itself is subject to regulation. So industrial hemp in Virginia has to be produced according to certain laws and regulations. Um, and these were enacted under the Farm Bill, the U.S. Farm Bill that was passed in 2018, I think. Um, in addition to that, industrial hemp extracts have to have uh, a no greater tetrahydrocannabinol concentration uh, than 0.3%. And again, that's a pretty that's the, sort of the standard definition of what's the difference between hemp and marijuana is that the hemp products have uh, less than 0.3% tetrahydrocannabinol content in them. And that's the active ingredient in marijuana that, for lack of a better word, gets you high. Um, so now the Board of Agriculture and Consumer Services has to have obligation, has to have regulations and labeling requirements and testing requirements and so on. And there's supposed to be a plan put into place um, to approve industrial hemp as a food or ingredient. Um, many of you have been trained in the handling of naloxone. And naloxone is, um, if you don't know what naloxone is, you should find out what naloxone is. Uh, but it, and some of you already know what naloxone is and have been trained in it. Now, under Virginia law starting July 1, even if you haven't been trained or authorized to administer naloxone, if you have somebody who's experiencing a life-threatening overdose, if you are acting in good faith and uh, not demonstrating gross negligence or willful or wanton misconduct, you are permitted under law to administer naloxone. Um, to overdose to uh, for overdose reversal or to a person who's believed to be experiencing or about to experience life-threatening opioid overdoses and the code section also provides that if you again if you if in good faith you administer naloxone you shall not be liable for any civil damages again absent gross negligence or willful or wanton misconduct if you don't know the difference between regular negligence and gross negligence uh, or you know negligence and wanton conduct listen to my use of force lectures from earlier we talked about uh, the episodes earlier i think episode one two and three we talk a lot about the difference between negligence and uh, gross negligence and so on um, in addition, with respect to overdoses, it's, it was a big topic this year at the General Assembly. And the General Assembly, you might remember last year that there was this sort of safe harbor bill that was put into effect that provided that if somebody called 911, that they would get a safe harbor, they would get protection from prosecution for drug possession or any offense of drug, uh, any, you know, even distribution of drugs, um, potentially, uh, if they, you know, called for emergency help. Now the code section will provide that no person shall be subject to arrest or prosecution for any offense of possession of alcohol or possession of marijuana or possession of a controlled drug or public intoxication or possession of paraphernalia if they call for emergency medical help for themselves or if they call for emergency medical help for someone else. But also in addition to that, if 
the, if they call for somebody else, that person for whom they're calling also cannot be prosecuted, prosecuted or subject to arrest for possession of alcohol, possession of marijuana, possession of controlled drug, possession of paraphernalia, and so on. So this is a um, this is essentially and it, and it's changed now to immunity. In other words, now it's not just a defense. Well, I'm the one who called 911. Now it is complete immunity. It orders the police not to uh, arrest these people. It orders that they shall not be prosecuted. And so what the, the reason why that's different is it used to be if I pick up the phone and I call and I say, Billy, my friend here is overdosing, I, get prote- I used to get protection uh, from arrest, but Billy, who was overdosing because he's not the one who called 911, he didn't get any protection. Now Billy gets protection and I also, if I call 911, get protection. Now, this can be complicated, and you may not know who called 911. The person who called 911 may not identify themselves. They might just say, hey, come to 101 Main Street. There's a guy who's overdosing. Come help, come help, come help. Um, And you may not realize that the person who made that call is there on the scene and is standing there, you know, in possession of drugs. So you might end up arresting that person when that person is supposed to be immune from arrest. And this code section states that there is no liability for you if you're acting in good faith for false arrest. So in other words, if later you figure out, wait, no, that was a person who called 911. You didn't know that. You weren't aware they called 911. But so you were acting in good faith, but they were supposed to be immune from arrest. Um, you're not, you're not uh, liable for false arrest. It does provide you that protection. But essentially what that means is that if somebody's overdosing and I'm calling, I'm calling for my friend Billy who's overdosing, um, I basically can lawfully possess cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, whatever, uh, and I can't be prosecuted for that. It also doesn't uh, require that there be any kind of treatment or whatever. So if Billy, you know, I keep, I decide to keep using and Billy decides to keep using, that doesn't matter. As long as I call 911, I get that protection. Um, we again talked about marijuana decriminalization last time. What I didn't mention was that, you know, we do have this uh, slow, uh, slow rollout of medical marijuana in Virginia. And as of July 1, cannabis dispensing facilities are permitted to exist. And the Board of Pharmacy can, can now issue up to five permits per health service area for cannabis dispensing facilities in Virginia. So they have all these regulations that they're putting into effect now about what that cannabis dispensing facility can look like. Um, And that includes um, cannabis and cannabidiol oil, THC oil, and and so on. Um, They have to provide, you know, samples to the Board of Pharmacy and, you know, sorts of regulations have to be handed down and so on. Um, but that is something that is coming as well. And uh, lastly, on the area of drugs, um, and this is the last thing I'm going to talk about today, um, as far as possession of CBD oil or THC oil, uh, cannabidiol oil, essentially, um, it's, if somebody who possesses marijuana in the form of cannabidiol oil or THC oil um, cannot be prosecuted for simple possession of marijuana if they have a, and I'm not going to say prescription because it's not a real prescription, but a valid certification issued by one of those practitioners, one of those medical practitioners we're talking about. Um, so what that means and, and, and is, you know, remember, marijuana is still illegal and still a felony offense to possess under federal law. It's a Schedule One controlled substance because it's Schedule One under federal law. 
it, it is never lawful for you, as if, you ha- if you're a pharmacist and you possess a DEA license to be a pharmacist, to write a prescription for marijuana. You can't do that. If you do that, you'll lose your DEA license and you won't be able to uh, prescribe any drugs. If it were Schedule II, there would be circumstances where you could do it. And cocaine is an example of a Schedule II controlled substance. It is possible to write a prescription for cocaine, right? And, and ophthalmologists use it sometimes for eye surgery. Um, but Schedule One is stuff that can never be used, like methamphetamine. There's no lawful reason for the use of methamphetamine or fentanyl because right, Schedule One. There's no lawful reason for that. So uh, marijuana is Schedule One. So if you're a pharmacist, even if the Virginia Board of Pharmacy has given you a permit to operate a medical marijuana facility that uh, sells cannabidiol oil or dispenses cannabidiol oil, you can't write a prescription for that. So what do you write? Well, you write what's basically considered to be a certification. And it says, I certify that, and the Board of Pharmacy will have regulations about this, but essentially in other states, what it's basically said is, I certify that this person could benefit from marijuana or CBD oil or THCA oil or THC, you know, that kind of thing. So it's some certification that the person might benefit. I'm not telling the person, go take this drug. I'm just saying, I certify as a medical professional that this person might benefit from taking this particular drug. Right, so you get this from your doctor, you go to the pharmacy, the pharmacy issues you this drug and you have this certification by some medical practitioner that it's okay to do this. And then you can't be prosecuted uh, for unlawful possession of marijuana or unlawful possession of cannabinoid oil or THC oil. And notice I keep using this phrase cannabinoid oil or um, THCA oil um, or, you know, I think the governor uh, wanted to use the term cannabis oil. We're talking again about a formulation of a processed cannabis plant containing at least 15% cannabinoid oil, but no more than 5% tetrahydrocannabinol. So it's some dilution, or also it can be a dilution of the resin of the cannabis plant that again contains at least five milligrams of cannabinoid oil, but not more than 5% tetrahydrocannabinol. So we're talking about higher levels of THC than hemp. Um, but it's not necessarily into the realm of what we'd consider to be hash or hash oil, right? Uh, And again, there's no difference anymore between the oil form and the real form of marijuana. It's all just marijuana. We don't have hash oil anymore either. uh, Those are all those things, right? So medical marijuana coming, um, overdose protections, uh, naloxone, um, somewhat relaxed uh, administration of naloxone, um, as well as new laws about hemp, new laws about protective orders, Um, pregnant prisoners and so on. A lot of big changes. And um, ladies and gentlemen, that takes us to about halfway through all the new laws that I wanted to talk about with you guys. And we're done for today. So I hope that was useful for you guys today. Um, Again, um, that's all I got. Um, But if you got more more things that you want to hear about, um, then please let me know. Um, I hope that was useful. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. Uh, If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Uh, That's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.